This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. If you've ever wondered who invented those inflatable men you see outside of used car lots, why you don't see missing kids on milk cartons anymore, or what makes McMansions so damn hideous, well, you can find all the answers on one of my favorite podcasts called 99% Invisible. I've been listening to 99PI for probably close to five years now, and with over 150 million downloads, it's one of the most popular podcasts on iTunes. The name of the show is taken from a quote by Buckminster Fuller, who said, 99% of who you are is invisible and untouchable. And the show's host and founder, Roman Mars, says 99PI is about all the thought that goes into the things we don't think about, the unnoticed architecture and design that shape our world. Roman Mars was one of Fast Company's 100 Most Creative People in 2013, and he was a TED mainstage speaker in 2015. His TED Talk is currently the most popular talk about design, with nearly 4 million views. His crowdfunding campaigns have raised over 2 million, and he's the highest-funded journalist in Kickstarter history. He's also a co-founder of Radiotopia, a collection of groundbreaking independent podcasts including Criminal, The Illusionist, The Memory Palace, Radio Diaries, Mortified, The West Wing Weekly, and the latest edition called Ear Hustle. And Roman recently began co-hosting a second podcast himself that's using Donald Trump's tweets to teach listeners about constitutional law. In fact, it's called What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law. Today we'll talk about that show and 99% Invisible, as well as the origins of Roman's love for design, and in particular, his fascination with the easily overlooked elements in the everyday designed environment. Roman shares his hatred of ugly city flags and waxes about the simple perfection of an old-fashioned toaster. Plus, he weighs in from a design perspective on Donald Trump's buildings, his long ties, those red trucker hats, and more. Coming up with 99PI's Roman Mars in just a moment. Roman Mars is the host and creator of 99% Invisible, a short radio show about design and architecture. With over 190 million downloads, 99% Invisible podcast is one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Fast Company named him one of the 100 most creative people in 2013. He was a TED main stage speaker in 2015, and his TED Talk is currently the most popular TED Talk about design, with nearly 4 million views. He's also the co-founder of Radiotopia, a collective of groundbreaking independent podcasts, including, among others, Criminal, The Illusionist, The Memory Palace, West Wing Weekly, the new podcast Ear Hustle, and Roman's own new venture called What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law. Roman, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I've been listening to 99% Invisible for Gosh, probably at least three or four years now. In fact, I would say that you're one of the reasons I got into podcasting myself. Oh, um, wow. Thank you so much. 
it, you tell these wonderful little stories that somehow relate to design. For anyone who hasn't listened, it, it covers the often overlooked aspects of the built environment, not just strictly architecture. Give us just quickly a few examples of 99PI stories. Well, I tend to take a really broad view of what design is. So anything that's been you know made by a human and how that reflects on us as humans is a 99PI story. So we go from anything from minute to like the design of uh, toothbrushes. That was a really early episode. I am kind of obsessed with the design of flags. So I, I talk about that <laughs> occasionally. And, um, and you know, in bigger things. So uh, the most recent episode um, that I released uh, during you know, recording time a couple days ago was about the graphic design of the Mexico 68 Olympics and how it was used by the government to support the Olympics and also used by the protesters who were you know protesting the government there and so it's a it the way into the story is a design thing but usually it broadens out very wide to tell you a bigger story about the world we live in and the world that you know we make as humans collectively um, having listened for a few years, I was surprised to read that you didn't come from an architecture or a graphic design <laughs> background or even a broadcasting background. Um, you actually graduated with a PhD in genetics. How did your path lead you to radio and then, of course, I guess podcasting? I guess I should just correct that I didn't actually get my PhD. I got pretty <laughs> okay. far into it, but um, I didn't finish my thesis. And so, you know, I was one of these people that I... I fell in love with science really early on. I, I love science, still do. And by the time I got to being, all my classes were done and I was becoming a research scientist uh, proper and I didn't teach anymore and all that sort of stuff, I realized that I loved really just learning things new every day. And I wasn't really cut out to be the you know the type of scientist I wanted to be. And one of the things that I loved was radio. I love listening to public radio. I listen to public radio all the time in the lab. And I had this notion that if I could learn a new thing every day as a producer of a radio show, that would be the perfect life rather than working on the MRRM transposable element cluster in maze for the next five years of my life. <laughs> and so I began to sort of reorient my life, to, you know, like uh, volunteering in public radio stations and doing the work to, to build myself up. So I started in radio in 2000. And I really come at this from a radio perspective, 99% um, invisible. The design part of it came kind of later. I'm just the type of person who I like architecture tours. I like buildings. I didn't have uh, any training in it whatsoever, uh, which I think served the show pretty well, actually, because uh, I don't assume, you know, <laughs> the audience knows anything because I usually don't know anything <laughs> when we start. Uh, I become an expert in it in a, you know, in a few weeks or, a, you know, an expert for at least um, 20 minutes. And, um, and that's how the show kind of functions. So, I mean, that's the beauty of journalism is that you get a new thing all the time. You, you, you spin up on it. You try to get as, uh, as much control of the subject as you possibly can. And then you get to express your excitement about it as a, as a newcomer to uh, a bunch of people. And uh, I think that's kind of how it works. What was the first moment when you really got interested in design? Well, I was working in radio at WBEZ in Chicago. And there, if you're not moved by the architecture of Chicago, 
you, you're not like a human I can relate to all that <laughs> well. And so I used to go on this architecture boat tour by the Chicago Architecture Foundation. And it was life-changing, like hearing all the stories uh, about the buildings and, and why they were the way they were and all the history there that's in, embedded in these massive objects. And and the history was even bigger than the objects themselves, even though the buildings were huge. You know, that there was a, a huge 99% invisible part of what that building represented. And that was the first time that I thought the way that you know, I began to consume stories of architecture. I began to think it is possible to tell a story about a designed and therefore rather visual object in a format that didn't have visuals. Like I enjoyed the fact that it was relying on the story of the thing rather than the, rather than the aesthetics of the thing. And that that was the secret to making um, a good show that told people a different way to appreciate the design of things rather than just the way they look. Yeah, it is sort of ironic that you're exploring design and architecture through an entirely auditory medium. <laughs> but I, I, I do appreciate what you're doing here because it takes design beyond something that's merely observed to something that has a story behind it. I'll tell you, I never had any appreciation for fresh asphalt until I listened to you. <laughs> That's right. What I find, I think, most appealing about 99% is you don't do a lot of stories on the obvious design masterpieces like, say, the Guggenheim or the Nike swoosh. Often it's a story that gets the listener to reconsider something incredibly mundane in their everyday life. Yeah, that's that's kind of part of the, our mandate. I mean... There's a fair amount of design criticism in the world in design journalism. A lot of it happens online. I, I think that design awareness is at an all-time high. So there's now people that you can argue about fonts on movie posters with people online all day long. <laughs> like There's lots of people who are really aware of this. And it just didn't seem like it was worth our time to weigh in on the iPhone or the Nike swoosh. It's just... People have that covered and they do it really well. And I just like things that um, tell a history that you, you, to me, like the best design story is a great little story in and of itself. And then after you listen to it, whether you're thinking about the object itself that was the, the subject of the piece or not, it kind of help opens up and decodes the world in a new way for you. So you begin to notice the world in a new way. And so we might do a piece about, um, you know, lawns or something like that. And you, you think, wow, there's so much history and weirdness and lawns. And why do we have lawns? And what is this about? And then you notice <laughs> other places that don't have lawns. And, you know, I live in California and there's lots more places that, um, that you know, don't, don't think lawns are an all great idea. And so it begins to open up this world of a way of decoding the world and engaging with the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and that's kind of the perfect quintessential 99PI story is to, is to take something mundane and, and give it a little bit of this uh, magic so you can recognize, you know, kind of all the thought that went into it. And, and there's something about that that I find very seductive, the way that you can notice um, that people were thinking about things that you engage with every day and maybe ignore gives me a lot of comfort that there's smart people looking out for me, even in ways that I do not notice most of the time. 
And you mentioned why do certain places have lawns and why don't other places have lawns. It reminds me of a recent one you did that I absolutely loved. It was all about the evolution of cemeteries in the United <laughs> States. That's right. And how cemeteries went from being you know, something in the churchyard or a burial ground to being kind of suburban oases. In fact, I think somewhere near you up north, there's a town that's pretty much all cemetery, right? <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, there's a town called Colma. And it is um, where, after we ran out of space in San Francisco City proper, um, they moved all the bodies down to Colma. And it's, a, you know, it's a necropolis. It's a city of the dead. And it, you know, functions as a, you know, really just as a cemetery down there. Um, but a lot of these places um, used to be, you know, the version of parks that we had for a long time in in urban spaces and they're getting crowded out and we're, you know, we're thinking about why they're there. Why do we have cemeteries? So yeah, I, I, I love little stories like that. That sort of re-examine what you think of as just the standard way that we, you know, interact with dead bodies is these, these cemeteries. You know, there's an old, old cemetery near me that I like to go walking at. And one of the most interesting aspects is how the gravestones over the decades, I'm talking the span of 150 years, what they reveal about what fonts were popular then, <laughs> particularly <laughs> like the really old ones from like the late 1800s. They have these very theatrical fonts, like something you might see on the poster of a Buffalo Bills Wild West show back in those days. Right. Yeah. And then a lot of it has to do with fashion and some of it has to do with technology. I mean, so mm -hmm. originally stonemasons, you know, carved those things out and now they put down a little, they, you know, they put a thing on a computer, they put it down on the piece of stone and then uh, you know, a sand blaster makes it. So now you can get these really clean, clear sans serif fonts that um, look really different than the ones that uh, we did uh, even, uh, even only a few decades ago. And so, uh, so yeah, though, you know, yeah. that I'd love all the different influences that make a thing the way it is. And it's not always just, um, you know, uh, aesthetic taste. It's like, what's possible? What isn't possible anymore? Why, you know, like, because I guarantee most, why? <laughs> far uh gravestones are not hand chiseled anymore <laughs> so but i bet you there's some that you can find in that uh, cemetery that you like to walk around in that that were well it's sort of a double-edged sword listening to your podcast because nowadays i observe so much more about my environment <laughs> but i also drive my girlfriend crazy sometimes because we'll be driving along and i see something that's just an example of terrible design poorly thought out you know, creates more problems than it solves. And I go into this extended rant. If I'm like that, your <laughs> wife must think that you're completely insufferable <laughs> at times, I guess. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, in the, I can definitely go through the world nitpicking and, but more, more and more, I think the reason why I wanted to, to do the show the way it is, is that I wanted to talk about the 99% invisible part of design, which tends to be the good parts, the the bad parts you notice, the bad parts of design you pick up on, you um, you know you you yell at the person who made it. The good parts of the design work so well that for the most part you just think of them as you know the way the things are should be, and you don't appreciate the design that goes into it. And so, the way that I've sort of reoriented myself in the past you know seven years since I've done the show is. Um, it's really in that direction. So I tend to be a little more delightful to be around because <laughs> I'm, you know, I, I, I have this sort of optimistic, uh, you know, uh, view of the world when I, when I notice the good things in, in the world. But yeah, I can totally 
you know, uh, I can totally complain about a bad design all day long. I, you know, in particular, I, I complain about flag designs a lot. <laughs> I complain about, um, doors that I don't like, you know, any, any number of things like that. I, I, I can, I can certainly go on a, a rant about a lot of things. Yeah. You even gave a Ted talk about flags that actually inspired the city of Pocatello, Idaho to ask you to help redesign yeah. their flag. Uh, what is it about city flags? Why are they such an abomination? Yeah. Yeah. We, so I had, uh, I, I had, like I said, I'd lived in Chicago and Chicago has this beautiful city flag and it's used everywhere. And then I moved back to San Francisco. Um, I had lived here for a long time and then moved to Chicago, moved back. And I w- wondered, like, why had I never seen a San Francisco flag before? And why is, like, Chicago the only one with a flag? And uh, I learned that most cities have flags. And the reason why, you know, I hypothesize that they're not used all that much is because they're uh, they're <laughs> ugly and people don't want to fly them. And people don't know about them. And they know there's no effort by the, uh, you know, by the city to to you know, put them out in the world. And sure enough, when I started researching it, I started to realize that, yeah, there's a lot of ugly flags. And so this became a, a story that I revisited a lot. And when uh, the TED Talk people uh, asked me to do something, I, I began with this, uh, you know, this notion that I should do something about my grand unified theory <laughs> of design. And I wrote a couple of like, um, you know, bits of talks. And I tried them in places when I would do live events and when I would do lectures and nothing really felt right. So I went back to them and I said, I know this is not very big. I know this is not very like Ted to me uh, or my impression of them. But what do you think if I did this, uh, this talk about just about the design of city flags? And they immediately, to their credit, said, um, I can tell by the tone of your voice, you should totally do that talk. And and I realized that I was just kind of tripping myself up about what a TED Talk meant and it had to be big and had to represent everything I thought about things and realized that um, if they would give me the platform for 17 minutes to talk about my annoyance with <laughs> ugly city flags, uh, it would be a glorious thing. And so since that that um, TED Talk went out, there's been over 80 redesigns of flags, uh, local really? municipal flags in different sort of stages. I don't tend to get involved with the flag designs just because they can get kind of heated in weird ways, you know, and it's sort of not my place to say your flag is ugly for these <laughs> reasons and should make it better for these other reasons. Um, city flags almost kind of remind me of political conventions when each state gets up there and they have their little moment in the spotlight and they want to deliver a laundry right. list of information about that state before they get to actually nominating <laughs> exactly. a candidate. It's a little bit like that, right? Yeah. A lot of times they want yeah. to cram every symbol they can into a flag and words oh. and everything. It's totally true. That's exactly the impulse. They, they want something that represents them. And so they put everything in and Nobody gets left out and they tend to put a lot of like city seals, which have that kind yeah. of quality, you know, these, you know, bales of hay and a tractor and a, you know, like a smokestack to show industry. And, and they tend to put those on the flags because they feel like those represent it. But it's so much nicer. Like the city of Chicago has, you know, two, hor- two horizontal blue stripes and uh, four six pointed red stars that are really like really sharp red stars that you don't see uh, in other flags. And it's just a beautiful thing. And it, I just wanted to people to to put that idea first of like belonging to your city and i think that today i think a lot of people definitely feel an affinity for their city um in a way that's a little different from their affinity to their country and Mm. um and it's nice to have something else to represent your civic pride and i just love that stuff what are some of your other design pet peeves 
pet peeves. Well, I mean, we've talked about uh, doors, you know, doors that don't work because <laughs> they don't give the cues that indicate whether or not you push or pull them. It's really <laughs> irritating to me. Um, I, you know, this one, that those are called Norman doors after a fellow named Don Norman who, who wrote about design in this beautiful book called The Design of Everyday Things, which was a huge influence on me and my work. And he also talks about um, the design of you know, range tops on ovens. Really? And like you can, I've lived in my house for five years and I still don't know which knob goes to which burner. That's true. Um, after <laughs> yeah. all this time. And so the, at event, eventually at a certain point, it is not my fault. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> I'm not just the idiot. Um, it is the, the fault of the design. And there's a little bit of, you know, letting yourself off the hook a bit for not being the dumbass that you think you are because for 20 years you've clicked the center switch to get the light on <laughs> in the room and realizing it's the wrong one, you have to do the other one and that sort of thing. So. Is there anything that for you represents the most perfectly designed thing? You know, it's usually not a whole thing. It's little things. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I have a Volkswagen Golf and I, when the windows are up and you shut the doors, it makes a kind of like, bonk, you know, sound that is just, you know, someone spent time on that sound. And that is the type of thing that makes me feel you know, like kind of warm and fuzzy about the world and the craftsmanship of the world. I love little things like, you know, the fact that you, you know, you push down a toaster, um, like a normal pop-up toaster, and even the kind of the old ones, if it wasn't plugged in, the thing didn't hook, you know, didn't stay down Mm -hmm. to let you know that, that, you know, like it's a little piece of feedback that lets you know that your toaster is not plugged in. And so therefore this bread will be down here in the bowels of your toaster the whole time if you don't plug it in. So, so it doesn't even register. Like it just, you know, it pounces back up and that's a, that's a sort of piece of, uh, of design feedback that I think is really glorious. And that's, you know, before Mm -hmm. way before anyone would, you know, put a display on a thing that would let you know, uh, such you know they they would do that so differently today and a few years into 99% invisible you actually launched radiotopia <laughs> which in interviews i've read and hearing you talk about it right now you seem to pitch it sort of as the anti npr now having worked in public radio before do i sense some rebellion against the creative constraints and bureaucracy of public radio well, I think actually public radio in general, like I love public radio. I've devoted a great deal of my life to public radio. Um, or NPR, let's say. Yeah, so NPR <laughs> is a little bit different. Um, you know, it's a production company uh, and and also has this strange connection with a network of radio stations that are independent across the country. And so a lot of NPR I love and I still like, I, I mean, I really do adore those people. But I needed to find ways to tell the stories I wanted to tell and not have the constraints of just even the clock on radio or the fundraising constraints the way they, you know, they have, which are, you know, again, to their credit, these are ethics that they live by. Um, But I just wanted to break free of them and create my own, my own thing. And mainly I just wanted to make a living doing what I was doing. And I wasn't trying to make something that was not NPR. I was trying to make like I grew up on punk rock music and so I was trying to make a <laughs> punk rock indie label 
of my friends. And this was the version yeah. of this that, that made the most sense. Yeah, and you have some of the most popular podcasts on iTunes under that label now. Mm -hmm. um, a good example is the new Radiotopia podcast, Ear Hustle, which yeah. is actually recorded and I think produced in or by the inmates at San Quentin State Prison. That's correct. How did that project come about? So uh, a little while ago, we launched a contest called PodQuest, which was we were trying to get um, as many people sort of interested and in, we wanted to work with all the people who could do the work that maybe we didn't know about in the world. So like a lot of my network of people are public radio people because I've been doing this for 17 years. And so we wanted to open up the doors and say, like, you have an idea for a podcast, you like send us a, a little thing. In the end of it, we got to this you know, this podcast called Ear Hustle, which it was like nothing we'd ever heard before. It was made by inmates at San Quentin. That was voices we hadn't heard before. They were um, doing really, really cool stuff. And it was so compelling that we just wanted to learn more. And so the team at Radiotopia um, really sort of ushered that into uh, existence and, and released it. And uh, it really has, the story of it is so great that it's really captured the imagination of a lot of people. So it's currently like number one in the country and it's on TV all the time. And the, the team there and the team in Radiotopia worked really, really hard on that. I'm super proud of them. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll have more with 99% Invisible's Roman Mars when we come back in just a moment. When... You also have a new podcast of your own called What Trump Can Teach Us About Con Law that you co-host with a constitutional law professor at UC Davis named Elizabeth Joe. This is a bit of a departure for you. How did this idea evolve? You know, this was uh, pretty simple. I mean, I was uh, in February, there was all these executive orders from Trump and it was just constant news, constant. And I couldn't really get a grasp of it or make sense of it in the form, you know, like in terms of history and what this all meant. And uh, a fellow parent at the school that my, my kids go to, um, Elizabeth Cho, she's on Twitter a lot. She would uh, put out these tweets about, about Trump and she would, you know, like put them in context of constitutional law. And I found it really, really fascinating. And so I had uh, a coffee with her and we talked about it and I just like, well, let, let's just meet every week and let's just see if we can find a way to teach people kind of evergreen lessons about the Constitution through the tweets of, of Trump. I just talked to her. I cut it together. Um, we put it out. It's super simple. And it just scratches this itch in me to learn more about the Constitution when everyone's talking about all these new things that they never talked about before. They never, no one ever talked about the emoluments clause of the Constitution before Trump yeah. came yeah. into power. You know, like like these types of things have never come up before in, you know, years and years of teaching con law. And, and so it's fun to look at these little dusty corners of the Constitution and think about what, you know, the framers were, you know, were considering when they were creating it and how it sort of moves against sort of modern times. And it's not so much, you know, a lot of people you know, have said to me that there's been constitutional overreach for, you know, for a long time and, uh, and executive orders that you could talk about. But what we have now in Trump is uh, a window into his mind through these tweets, which is mm -hmm. uh, totally new. And it allows you to look at 
what the Constitution says about the things that he asserts in new ways. And so it's really fun. I don't know anything about it. I'm totally a student of this, and she's my teacher, and I just have a ball doing it. It's it's <laughs> like it's like starting like well, like seven years ago when I started 99PI on my own. It's it it just feels really fun. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'm always amazed when you know you see these guys who go around with a copy of the Constitution in their back pocket <laughs> or the Tea Party and all that, and then suddenly they just seem completely unfazed when the President of the United States starts talking about curbing freedom of the press and freedom of speech and trying yeah. to tell judges what to do. <laughs> exactly. I think that. That's a little bit, I think a little bit of this um, is this reclamation of what America is and, um, and that the Constitution is for all of us. And for a while, it was sort of owned by a side of, um, of mm-hmm. people who, who sort of were literalist to the Constitution. And, and then, you know, in, in the notion of a certain notion of America, and I, I never bought that. And so I like this. I like using it as a tool. Like it's not, you know, like I, it's, it's it's not meant to be aggressively partisan, even though I, right. I mean, I can't help it. I am who I am and I'm not a supporter, but you know, it is meant to be to take, you know, the, all this news and anxiety and use it to channel it into something positive. And to me, learning about the constitution is something extremely positive and it's super fun. And I love the old Supreme court cases that, uh, that, you know, sort of interpret the constitution and it's just, it's a new way to, it's just telling stories and there's great stories in there. It doesn't feel egregiously partisan, even though, of course, you have a point of view because yeah. you're really just using current events as a doorway to a larger discussion about the Constitution. Absolutely. We we really just get started with like this notion of like, okay, so Trump said he wants to cut off funds to sanctuary cities and then go, okay, so what does the Constitution say about the federal government imposing restrictions on how people use money and when they can withhold things and when they can't and you know all that sort of thing and it, so it goes back in time really quickly it just uses the current events as a sort of a jumping off point to make us understand a little bit more of what's going on and sort of contextually and you know we have a good amount of history and a lot of people writing about these things and it's really fun to uh, to, to sort of think about what they might have to say about this stuff. Uh, are you going to have an episode covering executive orders coming up? Well, I mean, we tend to cover the specific executive orders rather than right. the whole notion of executive orders. Um, but it's, um, so yeah, I mean, most the most recent one uh, is about as a reaction to an executive order, but I, I haven't right. covered that exactly. I can't even tell you. The thing is, is like, you know, it, it sort of comes in, it comes, like I began when I was piloting it and trying to figure out what I was going to do with the show. We recorded a bunch of them and, and I cut them together and see how they felt. But it's so crazy and erratic right now that <laughs> nothing we recorded two weeks ago applies today. <laughs> so, yeah. so I can't work ahead. Um, <laughs> we recorded an emoluments clause one and then, you know, like Maryland and DC, you know, sued and this group of uh, Democrats are suing the president and who knows if they even have standing to sue the president and we should probably talk about standing at some point and about the, the violation of the emoluments clause and and like so all of it had to be just thrown out and we're gonna you know redo it <laughs> tomorrow <laughs> um so uh you know i never know exactly what we're gonna talk about because uh, there's a new weird moment in <laughs> that, that um it, it's gonna take a lot of historians to pick apart all the stuff that's going on right now 
Yeah, I mean, it must be a little bit exhausting because you're really kind of dealing with a moving target. You know, one week you think you're yeah. you're dealing with the craziest thing you've ever seen, and then the next week it's been topped <laughs> exponentially. Oh, it's, it's totally true. It's totally true. I mean, the 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 good the good news is that for the most part. We just need to use them as a jumping off point to get back mm-hmm. into like an evergreen story about explaining the Constitution. But it is sort of, you know, like I have to put all these addendums always in because something has changed <laughs> a little bit just to recognize what what has happened so we don't sound like we're dumb, you know, because <laughs> some new thing happened, you know. Have you had any listeners say, whoa, 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 design boy, stick to architecture, <laughs> stay out of politics? I mean, for the most part, people have been uh, pretty good. There's a few people who, like I released, you know, the first episode on the 99PI feed because, you know, I, that's, I have an outlet of people who download a bunch of episodes. So like, you know, to let them know this new project I was doing. And a few people said, you know, I come to you to not hear politics specifically. <laughs> and I, you know, and it's like, I understand and I'm sympathetic to that. And, you know, I take donations and so these people are my partners in making this thing. And, and so I'm sensitive to that, but you know, I'm a person who lives in this world and, you know, and I like to, you know, this was a thing that was really bugging me. And the way that I create, you know, my form of art is that I recognize that maybe I can make a universal broadcastable version of my own anxieties and loves and, you know, fears and, you know, things that I find interesting. And this was just a thing I found so overwhelmingly interesting that even though I work all the time, I have no business creating another show. Um, <laughs> yeah. I couldn't help but create it. And so I couldn't help but share it. And, you know, we brought a bunch of people over with us and they seemed to appreciate it. But, you know, we'll lose a few because you know, that that's just the the way it is. But I if I could help it, I would because it's a it was a huge yeah. mistake to create a second show. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been on the receiving end of a lot of social media trolling from the Trump people? No, no because I mean, you know, I could and it might happen. But right now, if anyone listens to the show, the tone of the show is about the joy of learning things. And it is not about just bashing Trump. And so if anyone listens to it, I definitely have a point of view. I definitely eye roll and gasp through saying what Trump has done. But it is about discovering joy in this text, which is fundamental to our country. And I hope that the people who find it recognize that. Um, And so far, I think that's the reason why it's okay. But we got plenty of like, in the beginning, there was lots of one star um, you know, <laughs> iTunes reviews about me being a snowflake and that sort of thing. And, you know, and as soon as I, you know, publicize, Hey, there's a bunch of one-star reviews of people who clearly haven't heard the show, you know, a bunch yeah. of my people like jump on it and give five-star reviews. So, you know, like, it's okay. Like they can, they can have that. It's not, it is not meant for everybody, but, um, <laughs> the intent of it is really quite pure. And I hope that even the worst of the trolls can, yeah. you know, let, give me a pass on that one. Well, you've left this sort of open-ended um, in terms of how long you're going to run this podcast. Um, yeah. I had this conversation with Jacob Weisberg, the host of Trumpcast, about a year ago, and he said sort of the same thing. Uh, you know, he hopes he was going to get a break uh, once Trump lost the election. Now he's stuck with it. <laughs> Do you fear yeah. that you might get sick of your subject? I mean, I'll, I'm sure I'll get sick of Trump. I won't get sick of the calm law part. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really... like. Today, I mean, you had mentioned, like, does my wife get annoyed at me, you know, like, 
spouting off about design t- details. Today, it's more likely in a conversation, I will bore you with some aspect of constitutional law. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really like in the honeymoon stage with the subject material just because it's all so new to me and I don't know anything about it. And so it's uh, it's really enjoyable for me. Um, so right now, I like it. Um, it's more, you know, we we told advertisers we do 10 um, I'm going to take a little break and see, you know, like if that is enough or if I'm going to keep doing more or take a little break. I'm, I I have no idea. I mean, 99PI is a weekly show. We put out, I think, a really high quality show every single week that takes six to eight weeks to make the, one of those things. And, um, you know, that that's still my first love. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to make sure I'm not injuring, you know, the 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 real show by my little lark you know (laughs) (laughs) well before we go i just want to have a little experiment here and meld both podcasts a bit and ask Mm -hmm. you a few quick trump related design questions if you (laughs) will um trump tower good or bad design bad he makes he puts his name on ugly buildings there's like no they're there's boring buildings i don't i don't like them uh, how about the Trump Hotel and the old post office in D.C.? I mean, Have you seen that yet? Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So that one's good. The uh, 40 Manhattan, which he owns, um, is also, it's, it was one of the early tall skyscrapers in the skyscraper race of the early 20th century between it and the you know Chrysler building. Um, that's a beautiful building. I think he still owns that. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, those, those, are, those are beautiful. Yeah, can't help it. Uh, How about his extra long ties? Bad or good design? Oh, God. (laughs) That is enough for make... Like, the fact that he got elected just with the tie thing (laughs) would have stopped me from voting for him. I swear, I can't... I don't understand it. (laughs) I don't understand his... Like, I'm a person who... I love suits. I buy suits all the time. You know, like, he's a rich guy. You know, he could totally get a beautifully made suit that fits him and I don't understand it for the life of me the what in his I I, I, I just don't get it <laughs> how about the Trump hat make America Maybe. great again <laughs> I mean I recognize it. it it's a very good piece of design it does not work on me personally but it clearly worked as an icon and um and I had Michael Beirut on the show um who's a brilliant graphic designer talk about its its merits and how you wear it and how it becomes part of your identity <laughs> in this way that's really really powerful and it's sort of it's all caps so it's kind of shouting at you and it's red and you, you can recognize it from like yeah. you know 500 paces and in that sense it's a really brilliant piece of design um, that I think almost is effective because it is ugly if, if you get my meaning, <laughs> yeah. like it yeah. is a thumb in the eye yeah. of beautiful design and, and therefore a thumb in the eye of coastal elitism and all that sort of stuff. Like I, I think it, yeah. I think it's serving a real purpose. Um, but I, you know, but I, I don't, I don't like it or anything, <laughs> but it's, it's effective. Uh, finally, the hair masterpiece of structural <laughs> engineering or aesthetic <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I I just don't, again, I just don't get it. <laughs> just, it's you know, a mystery. Like, I don't, I, I don't sure. take a lot of uh, joy in making fun of people the way that they look or anything like that. I just like it, it, it calls attention to itself in really weird ways. We, we actually did think about like the, you know, like my, 
the tile for what Trump can teach about what Trump can teach us about con law, like in the iTunes store, like what the logo oh, yeah. is. There was a there was a notion of like, well, maybe this shouldn't be words. This should be a graphic, and 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 that leads it to like, okay, so you're gonna put a Trump hair face thing and. <laughs> And I just didn't want it. You know, yeah. I kind of, I don't want to see it anymore. I, I don't. Yeah. I have no interest in in uh, engaging with his aesthetics <laughs> or hair. his voice or anything like that. It just, it's really not. Doesn't work for me yeah. as a brand. Well, people can listen to ninety nine percent invisible and what Trump can teach us about con law and iTunes and where else? iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Radio Public. Um, you know, we're everywhere that you can get podcasts. Okay, where else can people uh, keep up with you? I'm on Twitter a lot at Roman Mars. The show has a uh, 99PI has a 99PI org and uh, Trump Con Law. You can find us on Twitter. Uh, and the website is 99PI.org. Fantastic. Well, Roman Mars, I, I've been a big fan of the show for four years. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Roman Mars for joining me on the podcast. Once more, you can subscribe to 99% Invisible and what Trump can teach us about con law on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at trumpconlaw.com, 99percentinvisible.com, and romanmars.com. And follow him on Twitter at at RomanMars. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kick-Ass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at Kick-Ass News Pod. And be sure to recommend Kick-Ass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.